0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, and the 2023 winner of an Award of Merit for Excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Thanks to our listeners, Grading the Nutmeg has hit a new milestone. In 2023, we had 30,106 downloads, our best year ever. You can help us do even better in 2024 by subscribing, writing a review on your favorite episode, and following us on Facebook and Instagram. Leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Today's episode is the second in our 2024 series on Connecticut's amazing maritime history. I hope you've had the chance to listen to our first one, episode number 180, on Colonial Connecticut and the West Indies. If you love these seafaring tales, you'll find dozens of stories to read on our website at ctexplore.org under the Topics button. And you'll be able to watch a tape presentation by my guest, Eric J. Dolan, on the New Haven Museum's YouTube channel. I'll put the links for these in the show notes for this episode. Are they pirates, profiteers, or legitimately authorized extensions of George Washington's almost non-existent American Navy? Today we'll find out with my guest, historian Eric J. Dolan, author of Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution, Dolan will underscore an element missing from most maritime histories of the American Revolution. A ragtag fleet of private vessels, from 20-foot whaleboats to 40 cannon men of war, that helped to win the war, including some 200 from Connecticut. Armed with cannons, guns, muskets, and pikes, thousands of privateers tormented the British on the Atlantic and in the bays and harbors on both sides of the ocean. Eric J. Dolan is the author of 16 books, including Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America, a topic that we look forward to exploring in an upcoming episode of Grating the Nutmeg. Rebels at Sea was awarded the Morrison Book Award for Naval Literature and was a finalist for the New England Society Book Award. His forthcoming book, to be published in May 2024, is Left for Dead, Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Happy to be here.
0: You know, your books, I have learned so much. Now, part of it is because I'm from the middle of America. I'm from the Midwest. So (laughs) I'm not from one of these maritime powers like Connecticut. But I will say, I just have learned so much. So... Today, we're going to talk about privateering, especially during the American Revolution. And I want to say, like, Connecticut was, of course, part of the British Empire, was a British colony. So they really were connected to centuries of British maritime exploration, commerce, and law. But explain, what is a privateer?
1: Privateer is a heavily armed, privately owned vessel that is given permission to attack enemy ships during times Of war. And that permission comes in the form of a letter of mark, which is a formal legal government document that gives the bearer the right not only to attack an enemy ship, but to bring it in to port as a prize. Now, it has to go to a court of adjudication. If it's determined to be a valid prize, meaning essentially that it actually was an enemy ship and not a friendly ship or a neutral ship, then the owners of the privateer and the people who fought on board the privateer are able to split 50-50 the proceeds from the sale of the ship And everything that was on the ship, the cargo, the cannons, uh, you name it. So it's basically a no-cost way to the government for expanding their navy during times of war. And it provides an economic incentive, clearly, for individuals to invest in privateers and also to fight on them. But as I argue most strenuously in my book, most privateers were not just motivated by profit. They also were as patriotic as other individuals during the American Revolution who fought on the American side.
0: I thought that was so interesting because I've watched a lot of um, World War One and World War II documentaries, for example, and in those cases, you're just trying to sink those ships. You know, those German submarines are <laughs> trying to sink American ships on their way to England during World War II. You know, there isn't any idea that you're going to capture them and have any material goods or money come back to you with the way mm-hmm. the privateers worked. So. Right. I guess my next question was is just going to have to be What's the difference between a privateer and a pirate?
1: <laughs> yeah, I wrote a book called Black Flags, Blue Waters, which is about pirates, real pirates, enemies of all mankind, uh, men who go out on ships and attack any ship that has any value whatsoever, hopefully, and they keep the profits for themselves. Now, many people have called privateers licensed pirates or licensed piracy. And there's a good reason for that, because privateering has been around since the 1200s. And when it's used properly, it is employed during an actual conflict, a war. And as I said, the privateers are given permission by the government to go out and attack enemy ships. Now, in the past, a lot of quote-unquote privateers were actually nothing more than pirates with another name. They went out and attacked any ships they wanted. They attacked ships when there was no war at all, and they didn't have letters of of mark, or if they did have letters of mark. So there was a lot of privateering in the past when they were nothing more than pirates, and that gave privateering a very bad name. And also – one thing that'll be known by your uh, listeners is Blackbeard, the great pirate. Now, Blackbeard was a privateer during the War of the Spanish Succession. Right after that war ended, he was out of employ because the privateering, the letter of Mark, was rescinded. So he decided to take his skill set, which is the same whether you're a privateer or a pirate, and apply it to piracy in the Caribbean. The difference between privateering and piracy In the American Revolution, is very clear, however, because in the American Revolution, the privateers were, in fact, just that. They were privateers. They did not attack any ships, and they did not keep all the profits just for themselves. They attacked enemy ships, and they brought the ships in to be adjudicated. So privateering was an accepted internationally accepted legal form of waging warfare. So during the American Revolution, the privateers that I talk about were most certainly not pirates. Although uh, if you've ever watched the Liam Neeson movies, uh, the Taken series, uh, he talks about, you know, I'm a man with a particular set of skills and you don't want to get on my wrong side. And it is true that pirates and privateers had basically the same skill set. You go out and you attack a ship and you take it as your own. But the privateers and the pirates had different ultimate goals and that's the distinction.
0: And tell us a little bit now. I think we've all seen, you know, the pirate speaking of movies, the Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> movies. But if I'm a heavily armed privateer and pri- by privateer you're talking about the the ship and privateersmen are the sailors. So right. but if you're a heavily armed privateer the ship and you're closing in on something you think of as a uh, a good ship to capture what do you do what's your if you're not trying to sink that ship what do you have to do in order to capture that ship
1: yeah it, it's very difficult the most difficult thing of all especially during this period on the open ocean is to determine what the ship is that's in front of you, whether it's a friendly ship, a neutral ship, or an enemy ship, because it was very common during the American Revolution, and indeed throughout the 1600s through the 1800s, for ships upon the ocean to have a number of different country flags on board, and they'd use the, sort of a false flag or a ruse de guerre. So you might have a British merchant ship that was flying A some version of an American ship, the pine tree or whatever was being used at the time, or an American privateer flying the Union Jack to try to deceive the other ship in the distance. As you got closer, you could use your spyglass and also communication across the water. When you got close enough, if the shooting hadn't already begun, you would yell across, Who are you? Where are you from? Where are you going? And if they were truthful, and many of the merchant ships were truthful, the British merchant ships because they were not heavily armed usually, and the American privateers were very heavily armed and had a lot of men on board, they would call across and they'd say, you know, what ship are you? Where are you going? And if they said they were a British ship, the American privateer would say, well, you better surrender to us or else we're going to start shooting. And in many cases, they would surrender because they were vastly outnumbered and outgunned. But there are many, many instances where British merchant ships were heavily armed because this was a time of war and there were many battles between American privateers and British merchant ships. And sometimes the American privateers lost. So once you figured out whether this was a valid ship to attack, there may in fact have been an attack that would soon follow and it could be quite bloody with many individuals being killed. And then the worst case scenario for an American Privateer was to be out in the open ocean, and some suddenly come upon a British warship because it would be very difficult to outrun that British warship, and the British warship would probably very quickly figure out this is at least an American merchant ship, but it's probably an American privateer given the number of guns that it has out on the side and the number of the individuals who are on the main deck. So all of a sudden, you'd be an American privateer, which could be heavily armed, but even if you were going up against a relatively small British warship, you were probably going to get the bad side of that encounter. So you had to use your ingenuity. You had to use words. You had to use signs. You had to be good at taking a look at another ship and trying to figure out what kind of ship it was. And sometimes they made mistakes. There are instances when American privateers attacked neutral ships. There are even a few instances where American privateers attacked other American privateers because they weren't uh, good enough at figuring out who the ship across the water was.
0: The flag thing seems particularly sneaky, but um, (laughs) so and then you'd have when you got the ships were close enough, uh, they could either surrender or not surrender. Right. And if not, you know, you would try to look for an opportunity to actually board them.
1: Right. Well, at first, you'd send a volley of broadside. You'd probably send a lot of cannon balls in their direction. And you didn't want to. If you were an American privateer, your goal was not to sink the other ship. Because that ship had value in and of itself, because if you brought it in and it was a valid prize, you could sell it and all that was on board. So you would try to disable it, perhaps, hit its masts. Sometimes you'd put sharpshooters up on your own masts and they would fire down upon the enemy ship and hopefully get them to surrender. But there were instances in which the fight got so bloody and so violent. And there were so many cannonballs flying back and forth that the ship you were trying to capture ended up sinking. And then you just had to take on board all the people who were on that ship, if you were a merciful privateer, and they they usually were. So it was very dangerous to be an American privateer. But most of the time, I would say you didn't have to resort to firing Uh, To get your way. And that's the same for pirates, by the way. A lot of people think pirates killed a lot of people. The truth is, probably eight out of every 10 encounters between a pirate ship in the late 1600s and early 1700s and a merchant ship would end with the merchant ship simply surrendering, realizing that they were overpowered.
0: So as a colony, uh, America had, of course, maritime commerce, and it had mm-hmm. ships. And I know in Connecticut, we were building ships, mm-hmm. and we have uh, harbors along the Long Island Sound. So that wa- that part wasn't new. But this idea of becoming a privateer and doing it for profit, how many privateers were there in the American Revolution? And how many British ships do you think they captured?
1: Yeah, this is what really amazed me when I started to delve into the research. There were between 1,600 and 1,800 privateers, American privateers, and they captured somewhere in the order of maybe 2,000 British ships during the course of the war. And when you think about 1,600 to 1,800 American privateers, and these were heavily manned And heavily armed privateers. So you might have a 70-foot sloop that was a fishing sloop, and there might be 10 men on board if they were out fishing. But if you had a 70-foot sloop that was armed and ready to attack a British merchant ship, there might be 100 or 150 men on board. So that while there were about 1600 to 1800 privateers, there were probably on the order of 30 to 40,000 men manning those privateers. So this was really a major industry, if you want to use that term, during the American Revolution. It employed a lot of mariners who had been put out of work because of the hostilities.
0: So George Washington really doesn't start out with a navy, obviously in 1775. How do the privateers work with what becomes the American Navy?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of people think that George Washington had something called the secret Navy or George Washington's secret Navy. A lot of people call them privateers, but they actually were not privateers. They didn't have letters of Mark. Basically, what he did is he realized when he was uh, battling the British who had taken over Boston that he needed to fight not only on the land— but also a little bit on the sea. And his real goal was to capture some British munition ships. And the way to do that was to send American ships out to hunt them. So he enlisted a number of small, relatively small ships, many of which from Marblehead, my hometown in Marblehead, Massachusetts, to go out and try to capture these British munition ships. He had something on the order of maybe 10 or 20 of these ships operating on his behalf. And they were quite successful. Many people called them privateers. They weren't privateers, but they acted like privateers. Those ships sort of morphed into the Continental Navy because the Continental Navy looked at what George Washington was doing, and they were thinking about setting up a Navy on their own. But they said, hey, George Washington took the leap before us. He's having some success with these naval encounters with the British. We, as the Continental Congress, we should be putting out our own Navy. Now, the Continental Navy had about 68 ships during the American Revolution. They didn't have a very noble or effective record during the American Revolution. Many of them were sunk. Many of them were captured. Some of them didn't even make it out of port. And you have to consider that it would be really difficult for a country that was well-funded and uh, well-operated to start a Navy from scratch. The Continental Congress was anything but. They had a very difficult time getting money, and they had a very difficult time coordinating the 13 rather independent uh, colonies. So the Continental Navy came together in fits and starts. And that is part of the reason why we relied so heavily on privateering in the absence of a powerful Continental Navy to go toe-to-toe with The British, we relied on the privateers who helped to fill the void. They gave us a presence on the open ocean, and they caused a lot of problems for the British. And uh, they did amplify our power on the seas.
0: One thing that I thought was really interesting was that in order to get all these men on these ships, the privateersmen, as you referred to them, you really had to have it be an attractive scheme Mm -hmm. to come to come to wealth or riches <laughs> i can see where the ship owners would probably benefit and stood at least a 50/50 chance of making some money what about the average sailor
1: yeah the the average sailor you're absolutely right the profit motive was very important they would basically have something called the hearty welcome. They'd The owners of the ship would hire out a pub. They'd invite all these guys to come in and drink as much as they want. They'd sign the articles. They'd go to sea with the hopes of striking it rich. And there were just enough privateers that did quite well to create the image of privateering being a quote-unquote profession or endeavor that you can engage in during the American Revolution and perhaps make a killing, literally and figuratively, but make a killing financially as we'll probably talk about later with prison ships and prisoners, many, many privateersmen didn't do well, and they ultimately were captured and put into prison ships. But it was sort of like going into a casino. Everybody who goes into a casino thinks they're going to hit it rich. Most don't. But the fact that some do keeps a lot of people coming back. Privateering was much the same. The profit motive was there. It was also there was less discipline if you joined a privateer than if you joined a Continental Navy vessel. And if you were successful, you got to share 50% of the profits between all the people on the crew. So if you had a really successful cruise, like the Philadelphia ship Holker, which brought in 10 ships during a single cruise that were sold at Dockside for £2 million, that was a really big payday. However, if you came back and you were skunked and you didn't capture a single British ship, you walked away with nothing. But you have to consider the alternatives. A lot of these men were former mariners, former fishermen working on merchant vessels, and the war had essentially killed that form of commerce and killed their livelihood. So they didn't have much going for them, and privateering gave them an opportunity to at least have a shot at making some money and also helping your country defeat the British.
0: I know you say they really had to work hard to recruit enough people to man these ships, Mm -hmm. and that you have seen that there were also, there were Black mariners involved. Yes.
1: Oh, yes. There were plenty of uh, Black privateersmen. Some of them were enslaved individuals who ran away from their masters, hoping to gain their freedom and, and also make some money. Other masters of enslaved individuals or owners they would actually sell or loan out for a fee their enslaved individuals. So if they came back, any money they made went to the white owners. Um, no. and no. yeah, and and then there were also free black men in the colonies, not most of them, but there were a significant percentage of free Black men, and many of which decided that they were patriotic or they wanted to join a privateering vessel. And one of the most interesting individuals like that that I talk about is a guy named James Fortin from Philadelphia. When he was age 14, he decided to join the Royal Lewis, which was a privateer that was operating out of uh, philadelphia and was captained by stephen decatur senior now james fortin was a free young black man age 14 his parents were also free he actually heard the declaration of independence being read from the central square in philadelphia and when he heard the words all men were created equal he thought, well, maybe this is actually true. This is the direction in which my country to be is heading. So he was feeling very patriotic. And then in 1780, Pennsylvania passed the first anti-slavery law, the law that would actually free some enslaved individuals. So he decided that he was going to be a patriotic American. He was going to fight for his country. He went out. The Royal Lewis did a great job, came back with seven vessels. He earned some money. He signed up again for another cruise. He shouldn't have been so eager in hindsight because barely a day out of port, the Royal Lewis was captured by the HMS Amphion, who was captained by uh, a guy named John Baisley. Now the Amphion went straight to New York City, uh, where they were going to deposit all of the men from the Royal Lewis into one of the famous prison hulks, the Jersey. Fortunately for James Fortin, Captain Baisley had a 12-year-old son on board, and he tapped Fortin to be a companion to his son. So when they pulled into New York Harbor— Captain Baisley gave Fortin a choice. He said, you can either disembark here with the other men from the Royal Lewis and go on to the prison ship, or you can go to England as a ward of my son. You will be educated, you will be free, and you will have a lot of money. James Fortin was a true patriot. He decided to go with the men of the Royal Lewis, and he was on the prison ship Jersey for eight months before being exchanged in a prisoner swap. And he probably had Captain Baisley to thank for being exchanged because when he dropped the men of the Royal Lewis off, Captain Baisley told the superintendent of prisons in New York who maintained the prison ships, he said, hey, this guy, James Fortin, is a good person. If you ever have an opportunity to do a prisoner swap, I would like you to consider him as one of the prisoners you're going to swap out. So it was very unusual because rarely was a black man included in a prisoner swap. There were very few prisoner swaps anyway, but the few that were It was usually uh, white men and officers first and then mariners second. So James Fortin, I just think, is a great story of a patriotic American who decided to fight for his country. And then after the war, he tried to make his country live up to the words of the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. He became a successful Uh, A sailmaker in Philadelphia, and when he died in 1842, he was worth $70,000, and he contributed to William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, when he wanted to establish an anti-slavery magazine called The Liberator, one of the people he contacted to get seed money was James Fortin. And James Fortin gave him money to help start this magazine, which certainly contributed to the ultimate destruction of slavery in the United States.
0: We'll be
2: back in a minute with my guest. March 1st marks the start of Women's History Month. To celebrate, we've gathered a sampling of five episodes that share incredible stories of Connecticut women throughout history. Visit ctexplore.org listen and look for our Women's History Month posts to begin listening. Episodes include the story of the first women to attend and change the history of Yale University, and Plato, one of the first Black women to publish a book in the United States, and artist Mary Rogers Williams, Oscar-winning actor, Catherine Hepburn, as well as architect Theodate Pope. We hope you enjoy these episodes and are inspired by the great women of Connecticut history. That's ctexplored.org listen. There's no better way to celebrate Read Across America Day this March 2nd than by reading Connecticut Explored Magazine. Whether you revisit your favorite edition, read an issue you've never read before, or explore back to our first volumes from 2002, you'll discover incredible stories about Connecticut history one after another. Kids can join the celebration too with our Where I Live Connecticut book for third and fourth graders and our Venture Smiths Colonial Connecticut book for grades five through eight. There's so many ways to read across America with Connecticut Explore. Visit our website to purchase a subscription, read our articles for free, and explore our back issues and books. That's ctexplore.org. Ready, set, read. It's just
0: astonishing that that story survives and that you can see such a, a long arc yeah. of his life becoming so successful and contributing to future success of abolitionism. There are so many Connecticut stories in the book and connections. There's one that I thought was really interesting. Tell us about the whaleboat privateers and how they're connected to Connecticut.
1: Well, during the war, Jonathan Trumbull Sr., the governor of connecticut the only colonial governor to side with the americans during the american revolution he issued privateering licenses or letters of mark to men who owned whale boats, or very small boats and those letters of mark gave them permission to capture british ships in long island sound around block island and block island sound and they also were allowed to go onto long island much of which was under tory control and to capture british goods and uh, and anything they could capture on land but it had to be british now what happened is a number of these whaleboat privateers not only went on land in Long Island and attacked British interests. They also attacked patriots. They just wanted money and goods and silver. And word got back to Trumbull that these whaleboat privateers were acting in a horrible manner governor george clinton of new york complained to trumbull trumbull's first response was well they have privateering licenses that say they're not supposed to do that they're not supposed to attack uh, loyal americans and if they are you need to bring evidence to court that they're doing this and we'll hold them to account well, that held for a couple of months, but then these whaleboat raids on Long Island continued, and a few very loyal American patriots, some of whom had stellar records in the Continental Army, were attacked and in one instance killed. And this got back to George Clinton. George Clinton complained to Trumbull again. Trumbull added uh, provisions in the letters of Mark saying that you cannot... Go on to land. You cannot attack British interests on land in Long Island. They continued to do that. So finally, Trumbull just revoked all the privateering licenses that he had given out to these whaleboat privateers. But that didn't 100% stop the problem because there were some individuals who operated sort of as fake. Whale boat privateers they didn't have letters of mark but they decided to just go off and pillage on their own so it was a little bit of bad blood above and beyond the regular bad blood between the Americans and the British was how uh, these whaleboat privateers were operating and just as I mentioned some American privateers in the open ocean attacked American ships and other American privateers. Here we have another instance of American privateers, in this case whaleboat privateers, who were attacking fellow Americans and causing a lot of distress.
0: This is where it's a fine line between pirates and privateers. I think. Yes. Oh,
1: so some of them were <laughs> some of them were out and out pirates.
0: <laughs> but the other really interesting Connecticut story, I think, uh, we touched on it in an episode um, two episodes ago on Benedict Arnold, but this is the Benedict Arnold's Raid of New London. Tell us about it from a privateer's point of view.
1: Okay. New London, great city, very important colonial city, a very successful merchant port. And when the American Revolution began, New London became one of the leading privateering nests, as the British called them. A lot of American privateers, a lot of ships set sail from New London to attack British shipping, and some of them were quite successful. In fact, the most valuable British ship ever brought into Connecticut was brought into London. It was called the Hannah, and it was worth 80,000 pounds sterling. So New London had been a real thorn in the side of the British with respect to privateering in particular. Also, during the September and the summer in September of 1781, General Henry Clinton, the head of British forces in America, he was concerned that George Washington was going to attack New York. So he wanted to create a disturbance along the coast of New England to draw General Washington's forces there instead of coming down to New York. so. Clinton had a twofold purpose in sending Brigadier General Benedict Arnold and 1,800 men to New London. One is he wanted to create a situation, sort of a feint, in which Clinton's force, in which uh, George Washington would divert his forces to protecting new london second thing that he wanted to do was to attack the privateering nest that was new london and cripple this town that had caused so much trouble for the british well clinton soon discovered that george washington wasn't heading to new york instead he was heading to yorktown uh, virginia to confront the british there but clinton said you know nevertheless benedict arnold go to New London, punish that privateering capital. So on September 6th, in the morning of September 6th, Arnold and about 1,800 men and a number of ships pull up the Thames River and an alarm is sounded. And Fort Griswold, which is across the river from New London in Groton, they send out the call for arms. About 170 men answer the call, not as many as they wanted. And while this is going on, Arnold and his men split up. Half of them landed on the Groton side. Half of them landed in New London. They proceeded to torch much of New London, destroy a lot of the privateering vessels in the harbor. And over in Groton, there were 800 British at the bottom of the hill that were going to attack Fort Griswold. So they led the attack, And at the time, General Arnold is across the river and he's got his telescope or his spyglass and he suddenly discovers that Fort Griswold is a lot bigger and better better protected than he thought it was. He thought it was a minor little fort. So he tried to call back his forces, but the word reached them too late. So these 800 British storm Fort Griswold and there's this very vicious fight that takes place. And right in the middle of the battle, The American flag, which had been on a flagpole, the halyard that was holding it up, was severed by a gunshot. So the American flag fluttered to the ground. The British thought this was the signal that the Americans were surrendering, so they rushed forward to take control of the fort and didn't protect themselves as much as they should have because the Americans rained down a volley of fire upon them. And this just got the British even more upset because they thought that the flag coming down was a sign of surrender. It wasn't, and soon that flag was flying again. But they redoubled their efforts. They took over the fort. They went in the main gate. Colonel Lieutenant Colonel uh, William Ledyard was there. He presented his sword to the British uh, officer in charge, saying, basically, you're in charge of this fort now. And one of the stories that has come down to us through history is that moment, the British officer grabbed Ledyard's sword and ran him through and killed him. Other people say that that's not what happened. There was just a general melee in the fort because, before everybody could learn that a surrender had been agreed to and Ledyard had been bayoneted to death. Either way, it was a rather dishonorable way to end your life, and it caused a lot of uh, anger on the part of the, the Americans. But so Arnold you know, destroyed a significant amount of New London. It was one of the bloodiest battles, certainly per capita, in the war. They overran Fort Griswold, but then just as quickly as the British forces came, they withdrew, and that was the end of the raid on New London. And this is one of many raids that the British engaged in along the coast to try to root out these nests of privateers but they were never able to completely shut down american privateering operations and the americans continued to send out privateers until uh 1783 essentially the end of the war
0: if you were a privateersman and you were captured were you considered uh, like an enemy combatant yes. i know you mentioned the prison ships what were those like and how would you get sent there
1: yeah the the british if you, if the British had a hierarchy of Americans, and they disliked all Americans at this time, they would put American soldiers sort of at the top, American mariners and naval men, part of the Continental Congress below that. Privateers were the very bottom. The British viewed American privateers as, in a sense, being nothing more than pirates. So when privateers were captured, the men on board were sent either the prisons in England Uh, Mill and Fortin Prison, or one of the prison ships in the colonies. There were 19 prison ships during the war in New York Harbor. The most notable, the most famous, and the most horrific was the Jersey prison ship, which was an old 64-gun British warship that was essentially moored in place right off what is now Brooklyn in about 12 feet of water. And it held between 850 and 1,200 American prisoners at any one time from about 1779 to 1781. And most of those prisoners were American privateers. And it was absolutely horrific. Between six and 12 Americans died every single day on board the the Jersey prison ship alone. Every morning, the British would call down to the Americans on the below deck and say, Rebels, bring up your dead. And not only would the rebels have to bring up their dead, they would also have to row the dead to the nearby shore and bury them in shallow graves. Most people did not make it out of prison ships alive. And the best estimate that we have is that in the Jersey alone, this is just one out of 19 uh, British warships, but far and away the largest and the one with the highest death toll, that on the Jersey alone during the American Revolution, perhaps as many as 11,500 men died. And most of those were American privateers. And I am absolutely certain that many of them came from Connecticut.
0: I, I'm sure it affected a lot of Connecticut families. Yes. As, as the American Revolution winds up and we win the war, the news has to go out to privateers that they have to stop.
1: <laughs> how right. does,
0: uh, but without, obviously, without cell phones, that takes a while. Um, <laughs> how does that message get conveyed? And you know where was, are these ships?
1: It, it it was it was difficult to get word to them when they're out in the open ocean. If not impossible, there was no messenger service. As you said, there weren't cell phones. There weren't uh, there <laughs> there weren't passenger pigeons. Uh, one way in which it happened is that other ships that set sail after peace was declared, if they came across an American privateer, they would let them know that the war was over and you should head back into port. But really, the way that it happened for most of the American privateers who were still engaged in battle is that privateering voyages didn't last that long. They might only be two or three months in length, even shorter if they were very successful and close to shore. So these ships would cycle in and out of port on a fairly regular basis. So whenever they came back to port, they would be informed of the news of the day. And if the news was that the war was over, they wouldn't go out again, because one of the things that happened when the war was over is that all privateering licenses or letters of mark were immediately revoked. But there were a couple of ships that towards the end didn't get word fast enough attacked british ships brought them in claimed them as prizes and in some instances they were the the judge agreed and said it was a valid prize in other instances it wasn't so it was a slow process to get the word out. But that also happened on land. In these early wars, there oftentimes were battles or skirmishes that took place after the official treaties were signed, because this is the colonial era. It took weeks, if not months, to get information up and down the coast, and it took many months to get information from Europe back to the now United States.
0: So for the American Revolution, they've got five or six years of privateering time available. But what about the War of 1812?
1: Yeah, the War of 1812, once again... We didn't have a very strong Navy. We relied heavily on privateers. We had something on the order of 600 privateers, and they did a very effective job, just like they did in the American Revolution, and they contributed to our ultimate victory. After the War of 1812, uh, there was a lot of soul-searching on the part of a lot of uh, countries who felt that privateering perhaps was not the best way to fight a war, especially since a lot of the major countries uh, had navies of some ability. And during after the Crimean War in the mid-1850s, uh, there was a treaty in 1856 where all the major nations of the world, excluding the United States, signed on to an agreement that put an end to privateering, made privateering illegal. Now, the reason that the United States didn't sign this treaty is they thought that they might need privateers once again, because we still didn't have a very strong Navy. And so they wanted to be able to have privateering in their back pocket and use it if necessary. But it came back to bite at least some Americans a few years later during the Civil War, because during the Civil War, the Confederacy issued letters of mark. There were actually Confederate privateers who attacked Union ships. Now, Abraham Lincoln was furious about this, and when some Union ships captured a Confederate privateer, they brought it into New York. They took the men, the privateersmen, off the ship, paraded them down Broadway in shackles, put them in the tombs prison, and Abraham Lincoln threatened to hang these Confederate privateersmen. Well, Jefferson Davis wrote Abraham Lincoln a letter and said, Dear Abe, they didn't say Dear Abe, but he said, you know, okay, we too can play this game. You start hanging our Confederate privateersmen, we are going to start hanging Union soldiers. So Abraham Lincoln thought about it. He decided that wasn't a good escalation. Those Confederate privateersmen were not hanged. And within about a year after starting to issue privateering licenses, the Confederacy got out of the business and instead relied on their raiders, such as the Alabama and the Shenandoah, which were more like naval ships, part of the Confederate Navy, to do their fighting on the open ocean. And interestingly enough, the Union thought briefly about issuing their own letters of mark to enhance the power of the Union Navy, but they decided not to follow through on that. And if we move up to the present day, even though privateering is basically outlawed throughout the world, in our constitution, there is still a provision under Article One, Section 8, which would allow Congress to issue letters of mark privateering licenses once again. Now, we haven't done that since... Uh, the War of 1812, at least the Union, you know, the North hadn't done that since the War of 1812 and the Confederates since the Civil War. But technically, we could do it. And amazingly, some people in recent years have recommended that we do issue letters of mark, for example, to fight pirates off the African coast or to do some other kind of operation that we may or may not think our Navy should be doing. Now, I think we have a great Navy. I don't think we need any privateers operating on our behalf, but it is there. And there was a bill introduced in Congress, I think, two sessions ago to resuscitate privateering, but it went nowhere. (laughs)
0: Well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll wait and see what happens with that. I guess I just want to close with giving you an opportunity to comment. You've done this wonderful, detailed book, and there are so many vivid stories in the book. I want to recommend it to people to read. But how much do you think this contributed to us winning the American Revolution against the British who had the world's best navy?
1: Yeah. Well, there's no one thing that won the American Revolution, not even George Washington alone, although he played a major role. The reason that we won the war, there were many, many reasons that we won the war. And I argue – and I, and I think quite convincingly, at least convincing to me, is that privateering was a very important part of the puzzle. Uh, one, it caused great problems to the British. We captured many British ships, caused a lot of financial pain. Insurance rates for British ships skyrocketed. We cut down on the trade between Britain and its Sugar Islands, which hurt them uh, in a great way, where it most counted in their in their pocketbook. We also contributed to Britain's weariness about fighting this war because they kept uh, getting attacked by these American privateers. American privateering helped to bring France into the war on the side of the colonies, and that was a major turning point in the war. The privateers themselves brought in not only ships and cannons and prisoners, but they also brought in specie, money as well as a lot of goods that were in short supply in the colonies and there was even one uh, man from Pennsylvania who wrote the Continental Congress in 1779 essentially saying without all of the goods and provisions that the American privateers had brought in we could have hardly sustained ourselves during the war and the privateersmen themselves when they earned some money they were able to contribute to the local economy and the local economy got a big boost because there was there were many privateers that had to be built, they had to be provisioned, and uh, it, it even lawyers made out. You had to hire lawyers to defend you in court when you had to determine whether a ship that was captured was a valid uh, prize. So I have a great Quote in the book, uh, I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but where one guy is writing to a lawyer saying, Hey, you're killing it with all this privateering. You have so much business, you don't know what to do with it. So there were a lot of ways in which privateering helped the American cause. And it's impossible to say what would have happened if we had no privateers. Although I would argue that without privateering, I I think that the war might have ended quite differently. They were that important.
0: On that note, I want to thank you so much for being our podcast today. I want to encourage people to get the book. And I also would encourage people to watch your presentation on the New Haven Museum's YouTube channel. uh, So they'll get to see your enthusiasm in person there on YouTube. (laughs) Uh, And once again, thank you, Eric.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I have to say, I lived in Connecticut for many years. I lived in Stanford, Connecticut from age nine through high school. And uh, one of the graduate schools I went to was the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, which is now the Yale School of Environmental Studies. So I have a great connection to the nutmeg state.
0: (laughs) I could tell. Big thanks to my guest, Eric J. Dolan. To find out more about his work, go to ericjdolan.com. Subscribe to get your copy of Connecticut Explored Magazine delivered to your mailbox or your inbox. Subscribe at ctexplore.org. Can you use your power of giving to consider making a recurring gift donation to the podcast? A recurring gift is an easy, automatic way to support Grading the Nutmeg. It's a one-time setup, and it's a consistent way to support your favorite Connecticut History podcast. Nonprofits depend on steady and dependable giving, and joining our recurring gift program is a sure way to keep Connecticut history alive all year long. Go to the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link. Eric J. Dolan's presentation at the New Haven Museum is now available on their YouTube channel as part of New Haven 250, an ongoing series of programming developed to complement America 250. To find their channel, search New Haven Museum on YouTube. Culminating with the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, this series will highlight inclusive, local, and lesser-known stories connecting past and present. Follow their Facebook page to find out more about upcoming programs. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.